Misfits Audio presents Lilac Dreams, written by Colin Thornton, read by Elise Crowick, produced by Chuck O'Hara. Two minutes into Dad's eulogy, I stopped listening to the Reverend and began looking at the mourners. Vaguely familiar faces of relatives, names forgotten, connections blurred. We were a modern family, a loosely knit tribe scattered from Texas to New Brunswick, Atlantic to Pacific. We sent Christmas cards faithfully, phoned on birthdays, and met face to face at weddings and funerals. A delegation from Dad's office was there, dull as dirt engineers, black tie solemn, white shirt conservative, trench coats and umbrellas emphasized their funereal tone. And neighbors, lots of neighbors, people I'd known forever. I'd grown up with their children, babysat many of them. We'd gone to each other's birthday parties, school plays, swimming lessons, and backyard barbecues. Diamond and Peggy were there, Georgina and Frank, Sleazeball Simmons with a pouty blonde on his arm. No sign of Lynn, unfortunately, although it sometimes took a minute to link a name to a face. I recognized everyone there, everyone except one woman. She was dressed in black, standing on the far side of the coffin, face hidden behind a veil, shoulders quaking, two young boys clutching at her skirt. A young girl stood beside her, holding her hand, her daughter presumably. The girl looked about 16 or 17, half my age, tall and gawky like I was at 16, red-rimmed eyes on the verge of tears, lips pursed tightly, stoic but struggling. Sweet lilac perfume filled the air. To this day, the scent of lilacs inevitably evokes this memory. The girl wiped tears on the back of her sleeve. Casually, she brushed the hair off her forehead and tucked it behind her ear with one finger. It was a simple gesture, fleeting and insignificant, but something about it struck me as eerily familiar. Unconsciously, I mimicked the same gesture, running four fingers across my temple, tucking hair behind my ear, a habit I picked up from Dad. I looked closer at the girl, auburn hair and blue eyes, like mine, freckles sprayed across cottony white skin, mine faded in my twenties, high cheekbones like mine and the same nose, all the more unfortunate for her. Our eyes met tentatively and darted away. We studied each other warily. Something between us was familiar, and at the same time, unknown. A faint tingle began to crawl up my spine, strengthening with each vertebrae until it hit my skull and rang out like a church bell. She was my sister, more precisely, my half-sister. Our loving father and devoted husband had a second family. The Weasel. International sales rep my ass. Reverend Julian paused mid-sentence, lowered his Bible, and turned slowly to look at me. It wasn't until every other set of eyes in the congregation were fixed on me that I realized I'd spoken out loud. Mom hit me with a fierce Baptist glare. Two of the engineers stifled smirks. I stared at my shoes, praying for the moment to pass. After what seemed like an hour, Reverend Julian resumed. 
any other man, I wouldn't be surprised. But sweet Jesus, my own goddamn father. Maybe the other girl realized it too. We didn't speak afterwards, and I haven't tried to find her since. What I remember vividly is looking at her and seeing myself at 17. Two lifetimes ago. Our annual neighborhood barbecue on Victoria Day. By my count, the first day of summer. In two weeks, high school would be behind me. June, July, and August stretched out like a vast ocean vista. Adventure waiting just over the horizon. Even the dreary necessity of a minimum wage summer job to help pay for college couldn't sully my dreams. Diamond stands at the grill, arranging his knives and forks and flippers, platters full of steaks and sausages stacked up beside him, his pumpkin-sized belly barely constrained in a fresh white apron. Chuck and Barry sit by his feet, staring up at him with the piercing gaze of a stage hypnotist, compelling him through some sort of beagle telepathy to toss a few morsels their way. Peggy fusses around the picnic table, arranging an encyclopedic assortment of salads, dips, and condiments. She makes room for a bowl of my mom's world-famous German potato salad. A 10-gallon pot of water is heating up on a gas-powered grill waiting for the young conscripts to finish shucking corn. Tubs full of ice are stuffed with bottles of wine, beer, liquor, and pop. Where you're dead, Sylvia, Diamond asks. Working, I say with a sigh. Vancouver, Victoria, I shrug and turn my palms up. Venezuela, who knows? Everyone else is in the pool floating on inner tubes, drinks in hand, diving for coins, somersaulting off the diving board, doing their best to soak anyone within splashing distance. I change into my suit and join them. Two hours later, my fingers are shriveled like raisins, lips blue, teeth chattering. I need something to rinse away the bitter taste of chlorine. Lynn and I climb the stairs in the shallow end, emerging face to face with her dad, almost as if he was waiting for us. He drapes a towel around me, resting his hands on my shoulders a little longer than necessary. My stomach lurches. I thank him as politely as possible. Call me Kelly, he says, smiling. I can't decide if he's a lapdog with his tongue hanging out, a wolf with a sparkle of light glinting off needle-pointed canines, or a wrinkled white slug crawling into the sun from under a rock. You're looking pale. He says, scanning me up and down. A little sun wouldn't hurt you, Sylvia. My alarm bells are ringing. Nipples always know when they're being stared at. They have built-in creep detectors. Mom was no help. Get used to it, she said. I wrap the towel around me, shielding myself from his gaze. Lynn flinches when he wraps his arm around her shoulders. Her eyes go blank and drop to the ground. We should change. I say, pulling on her arm. Don't change too much, he says, and sniggering at his feeble joke, wanders off into the crowd. After changing into dry clothes, I grab a pop, find a spot in the shade under the willow behind a wall of lilac blossoms. The fragrance is thick enough to swim through. Hey, stranger. The voice is familiar, 
but I'm squinting into the sun and half blind with chlorine red eye. Don't tell me you've forgotten. She steps into the shade. Of course not, Georgina, I say and pat the empty chair beside me. At least I have one friend around here. Neighborhood gossip swirls around Georgina these days. Frank Stofko's new bride. A widower marries a girl half his age, two months after his wife dies. People talk. No one ever badmouths old Frankie boy, but Georgina gets a lethal dose. How's the house? I ask. Needs work. I don't want to live in a shrine, if you know what I mean. I do. A cheer explodes from beyond the veil of willow branches. Barely six o'clock, and Mrs. McHugh is blotto, standing on the diving board throwing roses into the turquoise water. The crowd cheers her on. She's been like this ever since her husband ran off with the woman next door. Where's your guy? Georgina asks. I point to Jason, sprawled on the air mattress, baking in the sun, speckled with pink rose petals. How long you've been together now? I know where this is going. Newlyweds are tireless promoters of the fine institution of marriage. Georgina used to babysit me way back when, and I trust her. Besides, I'll go crazy if I don't talk to someone. He's asked me to marry him. She leans closer, eyes wide, eager to hear more. It's fun thinking about it, I admit. Lying together, talking or not talking, arms and legs wrapped around each other entwined. It feels so natural, like the world could end right then and we'd die happy. She waits, patiently, her eyes fixed on mine. But I don't think I want to marry anyone, ever. You'll change your mind, she insists, dismissing my foolishness with a wave of a hand and the absolute certainty of a happily married woman. I'm going to be a famous writer, I say, like Virginia Woolf. A shadow washes over Georgina's face. I thought so too, once. She lets that memory hang in the air. Who has the time, she sighs. There's a house to clean, meals to cook, laundry, errands, my job. Frank's kids have schedules like dentists. They always need to be picked up or dropped off somewhere inconvenient. Hockey, Soccer, piano. But now, she hoists herself up from her chair. I'm hungry, she says with a coquettish smile, one hand resting on her tummy, eating for two. I watch her join the women clustered around Diamond. Half of them are divorced and single or working on their second or third marriages. That's not the life I want. A shrill peal of laughter cuts through the din. Sounds like fresh teenage gossip. Tell Sil, Moira says to Nigel when I join them on deck in the deep end. Nigel's puffed up like a balloon about to burst. He looks over his shoulder, left, then right, and leans closer. You're not going to believe this, he whispers. Believe what? Too fucking good. What? A fresh flush of giggles from the girls. Jason scolds Nigel for not taking a photo. Everyone knows except me. Tell me. Mrs. Swartz. Yeah? Our English teacher, right? Ice queen, double-spaced grammar Nazi, right? 
embellishing his story with pornographic detail and an astounding array of hand gestures, Nigel tells me how he walked into Mr. Walker's office. Didn't knock, didn't have an appointment. Just walked right in. He had swords bent over his desk. The girls all squeal, putting the boards to her. Nigel barks a few times, tilts his head back, and howls into the clouds. Chuck and Barry answer from the other end of the pool, but stay by Diamond's side, just in case. I wish I had my camera with me, Nigel says. Jason punches him in the arm. Like to see that shot in the yearbook. If his story hadn't been so captivating, so lascivious, so deliciously juicy, we might have seen Jim and Rob, the tubby twins, sneak onto the diving board. We might have heard their chubby little feet padding along the board and springing skyward, or watched them curl into little cannonballs of sunburnt flesh. But we didn't, and they got us. Jim and Rob's heads popped up just in time to see Nigel and Jay jump on top of them for a revenge dunk. I'm not sure who pushed who, but all three girls followed the boys into the pool. I was the only one who stayed dry. Mrs. Swartz. Damn. My favorite teacher. Wonder which one will get fired. A cloud of barbecue drifts by. My stomach growls. Nigel's story almost ruined my appetite. But that aroma... Frank Stofko, his arm around Georgina, nods and smiles as I walk past. How old will he be when he has to teach his new kid to ride a bike, I wonder, or play baseball or drive a car? Diamond is hidden behind billowing clouds of smoke swirling up from the steak and sausage grease dripping onto the hot coals. Chuck and Barry are whimpering, shifting from paw to paw, licking their chops, their patience taxed beyond endurance. Hey, Sylvia he says from behind the smoke. Try this. He stabs a chunk of sausage with his knife and waves it under my nose. I hold it delicately between my teeth, waiting for it to cool down enough to bite into. Macedonian, he says and watches closely until the look on my face registers the delicious explosion of hot, spiced lamb. Smiling, he pulls a paintbrush out of a bubbling pot of marinade and slathers a layer on the steaks. You want soda, Sil? A beer? Ouzo? The thought of anything oozing at this point reminds me of Walker and Swartz. So I go for a beer. Get me one too, he says, dropping the brush back into the pot. We clink bottles and drink. How long have you been married to Peggy? I ask. Since she's fifteen. I almost choked on my beer. I make deal with her father. It sounds like a line from The Godfather. Is that legal? In Macedonia was. So how long? Spiros is 30, so 31 years. He turns back to the grill, poking the steaks with his finger, testing for doneness. That's like a world record, I say. What is? Peggy says, handing a plate of salad to Diamond. How long we're married, he answers. How did you... I ask stunned and stammering. How, I mean, fifteen. How did you... I had no way out, Peggy explains. Fifteen with a baby. Strange country. No English. We made it work. Had to. She pinches Diamond's cheek and pats it lovingly. For reasons I didn't understand, I felt closer to Diamond and Peggy at that moment than anyone else in the world. 
I almost envied Peggy, who had lucked into finding the perfect husband because he made a deal with her father. Mrs. Kahn arrives, empty plate in hand. She bends over the grill, boobs popping out, cleavage deeper than the Grand Canyon. Diamond stabs a sizzling piece of burnt flesh and eases it onto her plate, admiring her scenery. She turns on her high heels and flounces her jiggly butt over to the salad table. Barbecue night always ends with fireworks, a responsibility Mr. B takes seriously because he's a fireman, a real fireman, not a volunteer. Regardless of who hosts the barbecue, Mr. B drags a bucket of sand into the middle of the street and sets off a dozen pint-sized Roman candles. We all clap and cheer, wave our sparklers, and toast Queen Victoria's birthday. Twelve years and not one accident. Several police cars, but no fire trucks. People start to say goodnight and walk home, Jay and I among them. Five minutes later, we're standing in the shadow beside my house, kissing, touching, listening to each other breathe. Have you thought it over? He asks in his pillow voice. We've had this discussion a dozen times in the past two months. I can feel it coming back again. Who do they think they're fooling? I point across the street at Alex McLeod, walking Mrs. Hartley home. They shake hands at her front door. She steps inside, beckoning him to follow. Everybody knows they're at it like monkeys any chance they get, and they still maintain this handshaking charade. Don't change the subject. Somewhere in his hormone-saturated dreams, he probably expects me to wrap my arms around his neck, clutch his shirt collar, or better yet, throw myself at his feet and beg him not to leave. I twirl a strand of hair between my fingers and tuck it behind my ear. A nervous habit. I'll write every day, he says. Promise. I knew he wouldn't, and he didn't. Will you wait for me? Wait? We're still getting married. I can't see that far ahead, Jay. What? Four years? Plus two interning. We have the rest of our lives. I want to be a writer, Jay. If Margaret Atwood can do it, I can do it. There's a school in Montreal. We could live together. There's a better school in Iowa. Iowa, he snaps back, dropping his hands from my shoulders as if I had a contagious disease. We talked about this. We decided. I haven't decided anything. He starts sulking, his silence so complete that I can hear his watch ticking. He's trying to torture me, freeze me out, make me feel guilty, get me to change my mind. When it doesn't work, he pounds the brick wall with the fleshy side of his fist. You're so goddamn selfish, he says. It's my life, Jason. I have a right. My blood is up, but I stay calm. Shouting never works. Are we getting married or not? Aren't you supposed to get down on one knee and give me flowers, or have I been reading too many harlequins? I laugh, which makes him furious. Well, yes or no? Last time I heard from Jason was six years ago. He left his wife and married a nurse. She left him and married a lawyer. I went to Iowa, graduated, moved to New Brunswick, bought a small house by the water, and here I am, sitting on my front porch with a cup of chamomile and honey, watching the sunset, listening to the robins sing, smelling the lilacs, and writing as fast as my memories unfurl.
I made two choices that night and haven't regretted either, although I'm almost certain there are easier ways to make a living than writing. We hope you've enjoyed Lilac Dreams, written by Colin Thornton, read by Elise Crowick, and produced by Chuck O'Hara for Misfits Audio. Thank you for joining us.